Who died from COVID and why? And what's your risk of dying from COVID? Today we have data from the CDC to help us understand all of this. Come on, let's go take a look. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here with another episode for you. Today is really, really interesting. We've got some fascinating data from the CDC of all places where they looked at millions and millions of hospitalized patients, sifted through the data and answered the question, well, who, who really got sick and, and who died and why? So today we're going to answer that question. And by the way, there's a couple of surprises in there. Things I did not expect, I don't have an answer for yet. So we've got some exciting new or interesting new hypotheses to begin to look at. So possibly one that would tell us a new signal to look for in case you're wondering if somebody was going to have a worse case or a worse outcome. All right, let's go to that study right now. This one's called uh, Preventing Chronic Diseases the, is the policy journal there. And the, the, the article's titled Underlying Medical Conditions in Severe Illness Among 540,667 Adults Hospitalized with COVID-19 between March of 2020 and March of 2021. So we have a full year of data, a lot of names on here. They really sifted through this big time. So let's go take a look and let's go right to the conclusions, the results they had. So uh, there were 4.8 million, I'm going to get my drawing tool out here, uh, 4.8 million hospitalized patients over here. Where am I going? There I am. Um, and of those, about 11% uh, were COVID-19. So guess what? Millions of people are hospitalized all the time. And in that context, about 11% of people who presented to the hospital in that one-year time from March to March they were uh, hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Now, were they in the hospital because of COVID or did they happen to have COVID that was discovered once they arrived? Don't have that answer for you in this data. So they're just uh, saying with COVID. And uh, um, of these, they say of whom about 95% had at least one underlying condition, medical condition. And you see here some of the factors in here. What surprised me is what's next uh, down in yellow. Not the first part. The strongest risk factors for death were obesity with an adjusted risk ratio of 1.30, meaning if you were obese, you had a 30% higher risk of a really bad outcome, in this case, death. Um, what surprised me is the next one on this list, which was anxiety and fear-related disorders with a 28% uh, increased chance of, of death. That I wasn't expecting to see show up on here at all. Certainly not on in number two on the list. Not surprising is number three with diabetes at uh, with an adjusted risk ratio of 1.26 there. And as well, however, those were just individual when they were able to pull out individual conditions. But what happened if you were obese and you had fear-related disorders and you had diabetes, things like that? It turned out that um, with patients who had at least one condition, they had a 53% chance higher of dying than patients without any underlying conditions, 53%. But there are patients who showed up with more than 10 conditions, and we'll get to what those are in just a second, and they had a 3.82, which is a 382% uh, higher chance, I think if, I, if I, that's how you would look at that, um, a 3.82 times higher chance of dying if you had 10 or more conditions, which makes sense. I mean, 10 conditions, what would those be? Do things like this. These are the conditions they looked at. 
272,591 patients showed up with essential hypertension. That's elevated blood pressure. There were a lot of people showing up with disorders of lipid metabolism. There's obesity, diabetes with complication. I'll tell you what that is in just a second. Uh, Coronary atherosclerosis, other heart disease, esophageal disorders. I'm surprised. I didn't know there were that many people with those, but apparently there are. Chronic kidney disease. Look at that showing up right here. Anxiety and fear-related disorders, um, 98,846 out of that original pool that they were talking about. Thyroid disorders, depressive disorders, an implant device or a graft-related encounter that showed up on their list as something to look for. Sleep-wake disorders, neurocognitive disorders, osteoarthritis, aplastic anemia, diabetes without complication. Get to that and what that means in a second. And asthma. So these were all the, the underlying medical conditions that really showed up. What surprised me was not just the anxiety and fear-related disorders showing up as a high risk factor for death, but that some of these showed up as not being actually relevant at all, that there was no additional risk. So let's go to that. But first, I want to make sure we have a, a really clear understanding of what some of these conditions are. You're going to see some of these uh, terms appear. One of them, aplastic anemia. Anemia, of course, relating to the blood. Uh, And it's a condition that occurs when your body stops producing enough new blood cells, aplastic anemia. And the condition leaves you fatigued, more prone to infections, maybe uncontrolled bleeding. It's a rare and serious condition. Aplastic anemia can develop at any age. So guess what? If you have that as as a comorbidity, not a good thing. And it makes sense, right? Because we know that COVID is fundamentally a disorder of the blood in many respects. It causes clotting, um, and, of course, you need a, a, function, a well-functioning immune system, which in large measure is operating through your blood system um, to help fight things off. So not surprised for that, but I just wanted you to know what aplastic anemia meant when we see it. Diabetes with complications includes any of these other things. Like you might have diabetes and a complicating factor could be cardiovascular disease or nerve damage, that neuropathy, the tingling, the numbness. You might have kidney damage, that nephropathy eye damage, the retinopathy, foot damage, skin conditions, hearing impairment, Alzheimer's disease. Those would be, if you had that diabetes with one or more of those things, you have a complicated course of diabetes um, as compared to uncomplicated diabetes. Anxiety and fear disorders are things like general anxiety disorder, OCD, panic disorder, PTSD, social phobia, all things sort of related to an anxiety condition um, and or uh, other neurocognitive sort of uh, maladaptions that that um, are listed here and some other ones. And then you'll also see this term um, bronchiectasis here, uh, a long-term condition where the airways of the lungs become abnormally widened, leading to a buildup of excess mucus that can make the lungs more vulnerable to infection. So it's a thing that was correlated because, uh, as we find out here, let me come down. Oh, I've got these slides slightly out of order. We'll go here first. Yeah. Um, So here's a big table. Let me go through the table with you so we understand it. So uh, thanks, Livia. Full frame on that is going to help. So this is table two out of this report from the CDC. It's adjusted risk ratios, and they're looking at three different levels here. Um, One, did it result in death? Two, this is invasive mechanical ventilation. That's called going on the ventilator and or ICU admission. And of course, this is sort of going from worst to, you know, bad to to least bad. ICU admission being the least bad out of these three outcomes here, because you can go to the ICU and not get put on a ventilator. So what showed up here, though, is when they were teasing through this data and they said, hey, uh, you know, what gave a higher risk of death 
or IMV, invasive mechanical ventilation, or ICU admission. Number one, obesity. So we're looking down this list here and we see obesity here, anxiety, diabetes with complication, chronic kidney disease, neurocognitive disorders, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and bronchiectasis, aplastic anemia, and coronary atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis is that hardening of the arteries. They also had thyroid disorders on here. I didn't make them yellow because this 1.04 is, is not, eh, it's a little bit of a risk factor, but okay, we'll keep it on there. But really these top eight had, had much stronger signals here. Uh, and that was for death. So you can see here um, ord ordinal ranking here from top to bottom uh, led to more death. It gets a little bit messier when we look at invasive uh, mechanical ventilation, but it's more or less an ordinal ranking. There's a few things out of, out of uh, sequence there. So aplastic anemia, had a much higher chance, for instance, of giving you invasive mechanical ventilation than neurocognitive disorders, which had a 1.0, which uh, if you had a neurocognitive disorder, didn't lead to any additional risk of you going on IMV. Um, and same thing over here for ICU admission. We can see uh, what the chances are here. But by the way, these are much lower numbers. Notice this is 1.16 as compared to 1.30. 1.14 compared to 1.28. So there was less of an association with whether or not you went to the ICU. All right. So these are the worst comorbidities. What was surprising about this to me, though, was this table, which is showing that these are a bunch of comorbidities here that had a lower risk or a non-significant difference in the risk of death or IMV or ICU admission. And so just look at this. This really surprised me. I, I did not expect this. So, um, over here, we're looking at diabetes without complication. Again, we drew that distinction. 0.94, there was a lower risk of death if you had diabetes without complication, um, a lower risk of ending up with mechanical ventilation, and about a, almost a 1.98 equal risk of ending up in an ICU admission. So, so no, no different than if you didn't have diabetes without complication. You had no comorbidities or you had diabetes without complication. Really no big difference. Super surprising to me. Essential hypertension, because we were really focused on this early on as a comorbidity that was probably going to be bad. The idea was that hypertension, fundamentally, you have a disruption in your uh, vascular system. And we know that COVID is largely a vascular disease in many respects. So to find out that essential hypertension only had a 0.92%, uh, you know, 0.92 means there was an 8% better chance of surviving or not dying if you did, if you had hypertension, then if you didn't, that's how the data came out. Uh, look at this, a full 10% reduction over here, closing in on um, uh, here on the restricted model, as they call it. What else? Uh, disorders of lipid metabolism. Remember, that's like one of the largest, largest things that people are showing up. Lots of people have that, but it's showing up with a much lower uh, chance over here of death. And so if a disorder of lipid metabolism is, is including people in that cohort who are maybe taking statins, right, the statins like Lipitor, things like that, we now have data that's come in, early clinical trial data and, and, and other pieces that say that maybe the statins are somewhat protective. So maybe that explains this a little bit. Sleep-wake disorders, 0.94%, so a 6% better chance. Uh, esophageal disorders, a 4% better chance of not dying. Depressive disorders, this I think is standing out here with a 0.89, that's really low. That might be part of that fluvoxamine story uh, that Steve Kirsch talks about a lot. It could be that 11% uh, of people were on fluvoxamine or something and somehow that, that impacted the death statistics here. 
Uh, osteoarthritis didn't really no didn't show up. Uh, implants. So if you have a cochlear implant or a graft related encounter, nothing. But surprisingly, too, asthma uh, not showing up. So again, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, over a half million observations. So this is a really big, really robust data set. So by the way, the good news in this, if you have any of these comorbidities, this data says you can take whatever fear you had and dial it way down because uh, it's just not showing up here as a co as a cofactor for anything bad, IMV, ICU admission, and or death. Each one of these things has uh, what appears to be a lower associated um, chance of that, except, you know... It, you see some of these sort of in their restricted model. You see some of these popping over one over here. But overall, I was kind of surprised that these comorbidities did not factor in as uh, being predictive or explanatory for any of these worse outcomes of going to the hospital with COVID. So that's the good news if you happen to have these. The bad news is if you happen to have any of these. But this now it starts to give us the data where we don't just say people with comorbidities now we get smarter about this and we get to say people with these comorbidities we have to pay closer attention to. And of course, all the good doctors out there already know this. And here are the people maybe we don't have to worry about quite as much, at least because of the presence of these particular comorbidities. That's fascinating. That's how we learn. That's how we keep rolling. I just want to talk about this, though, which really free- I didn't understand this at all. Anxiety and fear. Uh So here was their explanation of it. They're grasping at straws too, but it's kind of interesting. They say anxiety and fear-related disorders were a prevalent condition in our sample. They were also the second highest risk factor for death among the underlying conditions considered in our study. The reasons for this finding are likely multifactorial. That means could be many things. And may include a reduced ability to prevent infection among inpatients with anxiety disorders. Uh, Yeah, that may be, I guess, that's, you know... That's just a supposition, just tossing that out there. Um, the immunomodulatory and or cardiovascular effects of medications used to treat these disorders, they're saying maybe that's it. That's a little weird, at least in one respect, because we know that fluvoxamine actually has a very strong signal, that thing that Steve Kirsch is looking at all the time, and, and he, he's funded studies on it. Fluvoxamine actually is a very protective molecule. I'm not saying all SSRIs are or all antidepressants are, but in that case, we know that fluvoxamine should have jumped out, I think, in this particular case as being protective if they were sifting down at that level, but they might not have looked at the data at that level. They might have just looked at it um, at the top line. But at any rate, uh, they're wondering, was it medicines Um, or severe COVID-19 illness exacerbating anxiety disorders? Could it be that? Does it make them worse? And people who are more anxious, are they somehow less able to survive for some reason? Uh, In a subset of patients, this is interesting. With pre-COVID encounters in our study, anxiety diagnosed before COVID-19 was not independently associated with death or invasive mechanical ventilation during COVID-19 hospitalizations. And therefore, it is also plausible that anxiety was diagnosed during COVID-19 illness and may be a resulting sequelae of COVID-19. So that leads to this conclusion statement here. Thus, it's possible for the doctors listening or for anybody who's got a loved one with COVID, it's possible that a really bad sign that you're going to have a lousy COVID-19 experience or outcome would be behavioral or cognitive changes. So again, cause or effect, it might not be that the anxiety fear disorders are the thing that creates the condition that causes COVID-19 to be bad might be the other way around. It might be that COVID-19 causes cognitive changes 
which is that then would say once you have cognitive changes, this is probably not a good sign for the overall prognosis of that particular case. And that makes sense because we know about the brain fog. So we know COVID is hitting the brain. We know about um, uh, the extreme tiredness. We know about certain other cognitive changes that are happening. So it makes sense that this says that whatever COVID is doing, one of its mechanisms of action that's harmful is it's attacking the brain. And maybe when in the process of doing that, people show up with um, anxiety disorders. That's how it's being classified. So I think that this was the critical sentence here. In a subset of patients with pre-COVID encounters in our study, anxiety diagnosed before COVID-19 was not associated with death or IMV. Um, so uh, that to me is a pretty pretty good clue. We're going to uh, hope that gets followed up because it's a very interesting finding, um, and that would be possibly a clinical symptom to examine and look at. All right, uh, carrying on. Yeah, Liv, let's go full frame on this just so they can read the whole title here. This is table one out of this thing. This is uh, characteristics of adults hospitalized with COVID-19 um, in their big data sets here. And so, again, the whole thing, there was 48 99 million people hospitalized, of which 540,000 plus were actually uh, with COVID-19, of which this many went into ICU, this many became ventilated, and this many died. Um, And so if you look at this, here's the number one thing that jumped out at me hugely. Number of underlying conditions, zero. How many people died out of everybody in the country? So this would be healthy people of any age. So you could be 80 and you're showing up with no comorbidities. And guess what? 0.9% of people died who had zero comorbidities. And by the way, again, we have some data issues here we're not totally clear on because this could be, you know, the whole idea of dying within 28 days of a positive test meant that you were classified as a COVID death. So we don't know how many of those 740 people who died with zero comorbidities. um, What really, we we need more data. We need on each one of those would have to be looked at. And we'd have to ask like if, if, if any of those 740 were had three bullets in the chest or had just fallen off their motorcycle, I I would not want them included in this, in this table um, as having died of COVID. But anyway, that's another issue for another day. Now, as we go down, we find out that if you had just one comorbidity, Well, now you had a 2.6% chance of showing up if you had presented to the hospital, a 2.6% chance of having that progress, um, you know, uh, had died, right? So, uh, well, sorry, that's 2.6% out of everybody who died. You didn't have a 2.6% chance of dying. But if you were among the dead, um, only 2.6% of them had one uh, morbidity. Two to five morbidities, uh uh-oh, now we're up to 32%. Um, if you had two to five of those comorbidities, here they're not telling us if they were one of the deadly eight that we talked about or if it was one of the other ones. And so I'm unclear how to parse all of this at this point. But So I'm going to guess this is two to five out of that big list. I'm going to bet if they went down further and said, and maybe they didn't, I just missed that table. But if you went down further and said, hey, we're only going to look at people who had multiples of these bad comorbidities, right? Again, um, that was uh, people with diabetes with complication, anxiety disorders. Da, da, da. If you looked at those people, I would bet uh, you would see a, a different sort of a statistic. Because this is everybody. This is the whole data set right here. But look at this. If you had 6 to 10 comorbidities, you had a th- you were 39% of, of the total deaths that were recorded. And there are people who are showing up with more than 10 
comorbidities, and they are fully 25% of all the people who died. So if we just said, how many people died who had six or more comorbidities? The answer is 39.1 plus 25.1, which gives us uh, 44.2. 54.2. 64.2. Yeah, I finally got there. I triangulated it. 64, Chris, yes. Yes, thank you. 64. 64.2. So let's call this round up. Let's call that two-thirds. Two-thirds of everybody who died from COVID in this data sample had six or more comorbidities. I'm going to have to guess that we might, if we were going to use a label, we would say these are fundamentally unhealthy people, right? So... So that's, um, that's interesting. And also interesting, really fascinating off this table, 58.9% of people who died were, were dudes. It was males. So uh, vastly more males are dying than females, which is interesting because uh, down in Brazil, they ran this study months ago that I saw COVID-19 crusher on Twitter pulled up. And it's called, um, they were using a drug called proxalutamide, which inhibits the male um, testosterone pathway. And so uh, it turns out that proxalutamide has a very, very strong protective effect in both men and women. So there's something here, too, some other clues about how COVID is interacting with that pathway, um, which is, and I don't, I don't even pretend to know what the mechanism is. I'm just telling you, it's kind of interesting that more men died and that when you use a male androgen-blocking substance, more people survive. Make of that what you will, but uh, this is a pretty astonishing thing. I remember we were talking, Livio, it was way back, it was real early, um, probably two months into the whole thing in 2020, and the, and the Chinese were reporting more men were dying, and we reported that, and then there was a lot of brouhaha, and people said, you can't say that, it's not appropriate, and then we had misleading statistics out of the, out of the CDC even saying that's not true. Turns out it is true. Looks like the data supporting that from that initial report from the yeah. first uh, two months. Yep. Yep. But what was number one on this list? Number one, of course, obesity. So let's talk about obesity really quick. What do we mean by obesity? It's a well-defined term. Use this thing called the body mass index, the BMI. This shows you here, uh, based on what height you are from 5'0 to 6'4 and across some weights and pounds from 130 here and progressing on out to, you know, 390 going this way. This is your BMI cutoff number right here is at the 30 mark. So obese uh, clocks in at 30, which is this little line coming right down through here, right? So to find out if somebody is obese or not, you would look at their height against whatever weight they are. So in this case, if I took somebody who's 5'7", we would have to come all the way out here to this 30 and on here on up to 190 pounds. So if you're 5'7", 190, you're clocking at that number at um, BMI of 30. Now, what would be really interesting would be to go further than this because that's, that's a line you could draw. You could say anything over 30 is obese. But wouldn't it be interesting to actually know the BMIs uh, against the death statistics? Because I bet you it's it's not just binary. Like once you're at 30, it's like now you're in this bad category. I'll bet you that somebody who's at 40 is different than at 30. Just a guess, but I'd put money on that. So so at any rate, uh, this is this is uh, the, the table here. Um, they didn't tell us if they were looking at morbidly obese people, which is anybody over 40. They just classified everybody in this study as having obesity or not. Um, so again, I'd like to see a little more parsing through that guess would be that the more obese you are, um, uh, the, the worse the outcome. Now, the reason I care about this is because there's a huge, huge push on right now. Everybody's got to get vaccinated. It's a public health thing. Everybody's worried about this. There's a lot of fear and anxiety, uncertainty, doubt going on. 
And the idea is we want public health. We want public health. But our health authorities don't care about public health. We already know this. This has been established. If they did, they would be telling us about vitamin D and duizabin 1 and duizabin 2 and other ways of preparing our terrain. They would, and they're not doing that. As well, there's this really weird thing going on in the United States where uh, they're normalizing obesity. This is from a, a New York Times article here. It says, obese but healthy, right? And, you know, I wonder if, you know, do they, do they want to qualify that against this table at any point in time? Maybe. You know, maybe that article was written before this all came out. But here's some Cosmo covers from February. Um, this is healthy, they're saying here. And um, this is not healthy. This is clearly not healthy for, um, for COVID for sure. But, I mean, just in general, the, the, there's, no, there's no, I'm calling this medical misinformation. Like th these people ought to have their blue check mark yanked and Twitter ought to like ban them because because this is not accurate. This is absolutely I don't know any medical way to uh, to justify uh, this particular um, stance right here. So. At any rate, uh, it, it was so bad that Babylon B, of course, is a, is, is a satire outfit and they mocked up a men's health thing. Babylon B, they just nailed it again. Look at this. You get nachos on page 24. Uh, rethinking fitness and cis male heteronormative standards of health. And you're perfect the way you are. All of that stuff. Uh, 10 ways to feel better about yourself without exercising. So, so they're just lampooning um, these other article covers here. I think they did a good job at it because um, it's not, I, I don't even understand this attempt to, to normalize uh, what's clearly, clearly not healthy. Um, so at any rate, moving on, you know, what matters the most when it comes to uh, chance of dying from COVID age. So we've run through this before. This is a log chart. So here I'm going to present a second chart after this, which is a slightly different statistic, but it's the same chart. So a log chart means that this is a factor of 10. Every time we go up from 0.001 to 0.001 to 0.01 to, .001 to one. So there is a 0.1% chance of dying from COVID if you happen to be this old. But that's across that's across the whole population. It's just, this isn't saying if you had COVID, what's your chance of dying? I'm going to present that data next. This is just saying across everybody who's uh, 80 years of age, what is your, what is your death rate from uh, COVID? And uh, what, how, what role does age play in that? So when you see a straight line on a log chart, like these are, and they're perfectly straight lines, it tells you that there is an exponentially increasing chance of dying based on your age. And what's the doubling time in this case? 4.82 means that for every 4.82 years, the chance of dying from COVID doubles. Um, and that was uh, for the data that they took from up to April 20th. And then they took different data from May 4th to June 30th. And they found out that the doubling time was uh, 5.48. So that line's a little bit flatter. It takes a little bit longer. Um, to get to a doubling time, but also notice that line is a lot lower. So there's a number of reasons that we might see a lower line. One, there could be um, actual natural immunity showing up in the population. There could be vaccine-related immunity. There could be um, the, the virus itself could be losing its uh, vi viralness, right? It's, it's, its actual lethality could be going down. There's a lot of things that could be in, impacting that, but it's kind of cool that they noted that the line, which was um, a lot higher in April in that blue line, dropped down uh, a little bit later in this data series. All right, Livio, we'll go full screen on this one because I got to show this next chart. Don't want to cut it off. This is looking at COVID-19 case fatality rate by age. 
First thing that's of note, first thing that's really cool uh, is this is, guess what? Um, age, all by itself, general mortality rate, is also a straight linear line by age. So that's the first thing you need to understand is that as we age, our chance of dying goes up in doubles according to an exponential function by something. And here it's saying, hey, every seven years-ish, 6.84 years, your chance of, of dying in general from anything, from all causes, from whatever, um, from age, uh, they, it actually doubles about every seven years with age. And so that um, by the time you're out here and you're 85 years old, um, it's about the generalized mortality rate is running around 10%, uh, roughly speaking. This is on a yearly basis. So what's interesting is that, yes, COVID did shift this line up. It took it from here to here, so it bumped it up. We can clearly see the impact of COVID. It bumped that line up, so your chance of dying at any age was higher in the presence of COVID versus not. Um, but again, uh, the rates are really, really low. So if you are under the age of 40, your chance of dying here is about point. Mm, two-ish or something, according to this data. And this is a case fatality rate. So these are people who are showing up, they're COVID positive. If they were doing this actually right, it would be COVID positive in the hospital. Um, I hope that's what they did. I don't know if this study actually uh, pulled it that way because it's saying, guess what? If you're up here uh, at 85 years of age, all the way out here, and you have a case of COVID, your chance of dying, at least according to when this data set was pulled, is hovering around somewhere close to 30%. Because this is this is this here's ten percent. This next line is twenty. This next one's thirty. So that would be around a thirty percent chance of dying over the age of let's call it seventy-two. Because this is pretty close. This is this is a twenty percent chance of dying back here. Yeah. So really unacceptable case fatality rates. Of course, we do not have case fatality rates nearly that high. This is an older data set. We do um, now. We know uh, how to treat a lot, lot better. Uh, and and so. Well, at least in most hospitals, um, certainly uh, Joseph Verone at, at, at United Memorial down in Houston, he knows how to get that line way back down um, for the case fatality rate. Uh, his his averages are, are way better than almost anybody else's uh, in the hospital's level. So, all right, uh, we're coming out of full frame. We'll come back here. So my conclusions for all of this, based on this interesting data from the CDC, is number one, public health policy goal. Number one, if we really cared about public health, the first thing we would do, number one, most priority on this, would be to reduce obesity and improve overall health by reducing chronic diseases, right? You don't want people with six, seven, eight, nine, ten or more comorbidities, if you can help it. Is there a way that we can progress into old age with, with greater health? The answer has to indisputably be yes. Of course, things happen as you age, and people will get um, comorbidities. It will happen with age. I get that. And there's a level of unhealth that's, that's really profound across the population when you look at how obesity levels have exploded in the past 30 years, when you look at underlying chronic conditions, diabetes, things like that, diabetes with complications, those numbers from a public health standpoint have been just climbing and climbing for several decades. It is a public health emergency. So if I was in charge of public health and you said, what would we do to help people? We would begin to, you would hear, listen, everybody, take COVID seriously. We think you should get vaccinations because X, Y, Z and... We think you should lay off, uh, you know, the high fructose corn syrup and, um, you know, getting 90 percent of your calories from uh, un uncomplicated carbohydrates. There would be a story there that we would be talking about because this is the true public health emergency. When we look at the data, the data is totally clear. What would have happened? Livio, based on this table, 
if the whole country had no comorbidities, I know that's impossible, we would have expected a vastly, vastly lower death rate from COVID, right? That's as clear as clear as could be. There'd be a lot more people alive, Chris. And this is the sad part. We just don't hear this kind of information coming across the mainstream. They're more concerned with only one way out, which is, you know what, uh, as opposed to taking care of your health, taking yep. care of your immune system. None, none of yeah. that's discussed. And it's and it's and it would save lives. It would. So, so I would feel differently about this whole thing if our public health authorities were beating the drum on this kind of healthy, healthy thing, right? If they were talking about this, if they said, hey, everybody, you know, we, we really need to be working on one, things like obesity and combating these other chronic diseases. And number two, they would be telling us about how to properly prepare our terrain, right? They would be, and as for anybody who's new, this is your terrain, it's your body. The way you properly prepare it is you make sure it isn't of limiting um, values for any particular necessary subnutrient that you need, which could be a vitamin, because vitamins, by definition, you have to get from the outside. So vitamin D is really important. Vitamin C is important. We know that having zinc in your system, we know that having selenium, these are all things that are highly correlated with better disease outcomes, not just for COVID, but I'm going to bet you put money on this for lots of other disease outcomes. Uh, So this would be number two. They would say, hey, everybody, we need to get healthier. Let's start to slim down. This is really important. By the way, we're going to prepare our terrain. And then after we've done those two things, Number three, I think, yeah, then we could ensure that um, the vaccine risk-benefit calculations are actually favorable, and we use them, and we use them appropriately. Because vaccines, to me, I'm not anti-vax. i got to get that out of the table. I've had plenty. Um, but vaccines are always should be, from a public health standpoint, there's a risk-benefit trade-off that you have to be aware of, and that's just the nature of, of these things. There always ought to be that risk-benefit calculation. And the risks aren't necessarily just to my own personal health. There's risks for things like immune escape because you've inappropriately used a non-sterilizing vaccine in the middle of a pandemic, as I talked about with Geert Vandenbosch. There are people who can't have vaccinations for a variety of reasons um, because they've had a prior anaphylactic reaction to a vaccine because even according to the CDC, if you have a bad adverse event to shot one, you're not supposed to get shot two, which means by definition, you're not fully vaccinated. There are people out there who've already had COVID. And by the way, emerging data says that maybe, maybe we need to understand a little better what's going on with those people before we put an additional um, immune sort of challenge on them around COVID. So there, there's, all I'm trying to say is there's additional data. It's complex. It's not simple. It's not binary. It's not either you're for it or you're against it. You know, as I see being framed right now, it's a more subtle conversation. And it's one that requires a little bit of complexity, a lot of data, and being willing to change your mind and open your mind because what we think we know today, we might not know tomorrow. Today, we just learned that men, overwhelmingly compared to women, are at risk of dying. Today, we learned that not all comorbidities are all that bad. Some are, some aren't. So this is the kind of learning that we have going on all the time. And so we should, as an intelligent, healthy society, we ought to to be taking that learning and applying it and moving on with it. And that's not what I see happening these days. I'm seeing a a, a religiosity, you know, you're either for the Pope or the devil, you know, it's like, it's just become very black and white and it's not a black and white issue. It's, it's subtle. Um, and it's very personal and your list of comorbidities may be different from mine, which means we have different lives and different risk factors and different outcomes and a different approach. And those will all be true. So that's just what I want to advocate here today is that 
Uh, great data. We learned something from it, raised some questions, answered a few others. It's fantastic. I think I have a bead on why proxalutamide works now. I think I have a bead on um, what my personal risk factor is for uh, getting a serious outcome from COVID. And again, risk factor, no guarantees. You know, if my risk factor is low, I could still, you know, flame out and die from this. Or I could have tons of risk factors, skate right through and, and, and um, not even have any issues. So it's just a risk factor. Now, of course, uh, if you want to come and, ah, oh, geez, there it is, Livio, out of the way again. <laughs> no you know worries. what? I, I got to make sure I move this down because it says, you know what? It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. It really doesn't. We can use brains, logic, common sense. We can come together as a group of people and make our own decisions. We can, you know, uh, apparently parse through data and understand it faster, better than multi-billion dollar agencies with tens of thousands of employees. It's just a mysterious thing. I want to thank you. Thank you for listening. If you liked this, of course, hit the like button. If you want to share this, please share this. That's how people find out about things like this. Share it with people who you know and love and trust, and share it with five people if you could. That's my ask today. As well, you might want to come by uh, peakprosperity.com, because, uh, and you can click this link right here, because I'm going to go into, in part two of this, and this has to be behind a paywall for obvious reasons, I'm going to be talking about things that really are appropriate. I can't do it out here anymore. Uh, there's some really fascinating data that's actually come out now and some hypotheses around the vaccines themselves, and I'm going to be answering questions for people who ask the question, listen, I've got to get one. Is there anything I can do or should do, given I'm going to get one? I'm going to talk about these sorts of things as best I possibly can, of course, as an educator and somebody who will point people to data so they can make their own informed decisions. That's how we roll. If the data changes, I'll change my mind. But until the data changes, we go with what we've got and we make the best guesses we can. So if you want to, please come on by Peak Prosperity. Love to see you there. And uh, we're about to um, turn this recording off, and then I'll start recording part two for subscribers. See you next time. 